Section fifty of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. To Bennet Langton, Esquire, do sir. I have inquired more minutely about the medicine for the rheumatism, which I am sorry to hear that you still want. The receipt is this take equal quantities of flour of sulphur and flour of mustard seed make them into an electuary with honey or treacle and take a bolus as big as a nutmeg several times a day as you can bear it drinking after it a quarter of a pint of the infusion of the root of lovage lovage in ray's nomenclature is levisticum perhaps the botanist may know the latin name of this medicine i pretend not to judge there is all the appearance of its efficacy which a single instance can afford the patient was very old the pain very violent and the relief i think speedy and lasting my opinion of alterative medicine is not high but quid tentasse nocebit if it does harm or does no good it may be omitted but that it may do good you have i hope reason to think as desired by so your most affectionate humble servant samuel johnson april seventeenth seventeen seventy five on tuesday april eighteenth he and i were engaged to go with sir joshua reynolds to dine with mr cambridge at his beautiful villa on the banks of the thames near twickenham Dr. Johnson's tardiness was such that Sir Joshua, who had an appointment at Richmond early in the day, was obliged to go by himself on horseback, leaving his coach to Johnson and me. Johnson was in such good spirits that everything seemed to please him as we drove along. Our conversation turned on a variety of subjects. He thought portrait painting an improper employment for a woman footnote yet he sat to miss reynolds as he tells us perhaps ten times and miss reynolds's mind he said was very near to purity itself north Coates reynolds eight years later barry in his analysis said our females are totally shamefully and cruelly neglected in the appropriation of trades and employments barry's works and a footnote public practice of any art he observed and staring in men's faces is very indelicate in a female i happen to start a question whether when a man knows that some of his intimate friends are invited to the house of another friend with whom they are all equally intimate he may join them without an invitation. Johnson, no, sir, he is not to go where he is not invited. They may be invited on purpose to abuse him, smiling. It's a curious instance how little a man knows or wishes to know his own character in the world, or rather as a convincing proof that Johnson's roughness was only external, and did not proceed from his heart i insert the following dialogue johnson it is wonderful sir how rare a quality good humour is in life we meet with very few good-humoured men 
I mentioned four of our friends, none of whom he would allow to be good-humoured. The foremost likely to be mentioned would be, I think, Beauclair, Garrick, Langton, and Reynolds. On page 359, Boswell mentions Beauclair's acid manner. End of footnote. One was acid, another was muddy, and to the others he had objections which have escaped me. Footnote. In his dictionary, Johnson defines muddy as cloudy in mind, dull, and quotes the Winter's Tale, Act One, Scene Two. Wesley, journal, writes, Honest Muddy M.B. conducted me to his house. Johnson post March the twenty second, seventeen seventy six, after telling how an acquaintance of his drank adds, not that he gets drunk, for he is a very pious man, but he is always muddy. It seems at first sight unlikely that he called Reynolds muddy, yet three months earlier he had written, Reynolds has taken too much to strong liquor. End of footnote. Then, shaking his head and stretching himself at ease in the coach and smiling with much complacency, he turned to me and said, I look upon myself as a good-humoured fellow. The epithet fellow applied to the great lexicographer, the stately moralist, the masterly critic, as if he had been Sam Johnson, a mere pleasant companion, was highly diverting and this light notion of himself struck me with wonder. I answered, also smiling, No, no, sir, that will not do. You are good-natured, but not good-humoured. You are irascible. Footnote. In the Rambler number 72, Johnson defines good-humour as a habit of being pleased, a constant and perennial softness of manner, easiness of approach, and suavity of disposition. End of footnote. You have not patience with folly and absurdity. I believe you would pardon them if there were time to deprecate your vengeance, but punishment follows so quick after sentence that they cannot escape. I had brought with me a great bundle of Scotch magazines and newspapers in which his journey to the Western Islands was attacked in every mode, and I read a great part of them to him, knowing they would afford him entertainment. I wish that the writers of them had been present. They would have been sufficiently vexed. One ludicrous imitation of his style by Mr. Maclaurin, now one of the Scotch judges with the title of Lord Dreckholm, was distinguished by him from the rude mass. This said he, is the best. But I could caricature my own style much better myself. He defended his remark upon the general insufficiency of education in Scotland, and confirmed to me the authenticity of his witty saying on the learning of the Scotch, Their learning is like bread in a besieged town. Every man gets a little, but no man gets a full meal. Footnote. It is with their learning as with provisions in a besieged town. Everyone has a mouthful and no one a bellyful. 
Johnson's Works, 1787, volume 11, page 200, end of footnote. There is, said he, in Scotland, a diffusion of learning, a certain portion of it widely and thinly spread. A merchant there has as much learning as one of their clergy. Footnote. Men bred in the universities of Scotland cannot be expected to be often decorated with the splendours of ornamental erudition, but they obtain a mediocrity of knowledge between learning and ignorance, not inadequate to the purposes of common life, which is, I believe, very widely diffused among them. Johnson's Works, Volume 9, page 158. Lord Shelburne said that the Earl of Bute had a great deal of superficial knowledge, such as is commonly to be met with in France and Scotland, chiefly upon matters of natural philosophy, mines, fossils, a smattering of mechanics, a little metaphysics, and a very false taste in everything. Fitzmaurice's Shelburne A gentleman who had heard that Bentley was born in the north, said to Pawson, Wasn't he a Scotchman? No, sir, said Pawson. Bentley was a great Greek scholar. Roger's Table Talk, end of footnote. He talked of Isaac Walton's Lives, which is one of his most favourite books. Dr. Dunn's life, he said, was the most perfect of them. He observed that it was wonderful that Walton, who was in a very low situation in life, should have been familiarly received by so many great men, and that at a time when the ranks of society were kept more separate than they are now. He supposed that Walton had then given up his business as a linen draper and sempster, and was only an author, and added that he was a great panegyrist. Footnote. Walton did not retire from business till 1643, but in 1664 Dr. King, Bishop of Chichester, in a letter prefixed to his lives, mentions his having been familiarly acquainted with him for forty years, and in 1631 he was so intimate with Dr. Dunn that he was one of the friends who attended him on his deathbed. J. Boswell, Jr. His first wife's uncle was George Cranmer, the grandson of the Archbishop's brother. His second wife was half-sister of Bishop Ken. End of footnote. Boswell. No quality will get a man more friends than a disposition to admire the qualities of others. I do not mean flattery, but a sincere admiration. Johnson. Nay, no, sir, flattery pleases very generally. Footnote. Johnson himself, as Boswell tells us, was somewhat susceptible of flattery. Post, end of 1784, end of In the first place, the flatterer may think what he says to be true, but in the second place, whether he thinks so or not, he certainly thinks those whom he flatters of consequence enough to be flattered. No sooner had we made our bow to Mr. Cambridge in his library than Johnson ran eagerly to one side of the room, intent on poring over the backs of the books. Note. 
the first time he dined with me he was shown into my book-room and instantly pored over the lettering of each volume within his reach my collection of books is very miscellaneous and i feared there might be some among them that he would not like but seeing the number of volumes very considerable he said you are an honest man to have formed so great an accumulation of knowledge burney miss burney describes this visit memoirs of dr burney everybody rose to do him honour and he returned the attention with the most formal courtesy my father whispered to him that music was going forward which he would not my father thinks have found out and placing him on the best seat vacant told his daughters to go on with the duet while dr johnson intently rolling towards them one eye for they say he does not see with the other made a grave nod and gave a dignified motion with one hand in silent approvance of the proceeding he was next introduced to miss burney but his attention was not to be drawn off two minutes longer from the books to which he now strided his way he pored over them shelf by shelf almost brushing them with his eyelashes from near examination at last fixing upon something that happened to hit his fancy he took it down and standing aloof from the company which he seemed clean and clear to forget he began very composedly to read to himself and as intently as if he had been alone in his own study we were all excessively provoked for we were languishing fretting expiring to hear him talk dr burney taking up something that mrs thrale had said ventured to ask him about bach's concert the doctor comprehending his drift good-naturedly put away his book and see-sawing with a very humorous smile drolly repeated bach sir bach's concert and pray sir who is bach is he a piper End of footnote. sir joshua observed aside he runs to the books as i do to the pictures but i have the advantage i can see much more of the pictures than he can of the books mr cambridge upon this politely said dr johnson i am going with your pardon to accuse myself for i have the same custom which i perceive you have but it seems odd that one should have such a desire to look at the backs of books johnson ever ready for contest instantly started from his reverie wheeled round and answered sir the reason is very plain knowledge is of two kinds we know a subject ourselves or we know where we can find information upon it when we inquire into any subject the first thing we have to do is to know what books have treated of it this leads us to look at catalogues and the backs of books in libraries sir joshua observed to me the extraordinary promptitude with which johnson flew upon an argument yes said i he has no formal preparation no flourishing with his sword he is through your body in an instant 
Footnote. Reynolds, noting down such qualities as Johnson's works cannot convey, says that the most distinguished was his possessing a mind which was, as I may say, always ready for use. Most general subjects had undoubtedly been already discussed in the course of a studious thinking life. In this respect, few men ever came better prepared into whatever company chance might throw him, and the love which he had to society gave him a facility in the practice of applying his knowledge of the matter in hand, in which I believe he was never exceeded by any man. Taylor's Reynolds, end footnote. Johnson was here solaced with an elegant entertainment, a very accomplished family, and much good company, among whom was Mr. Harris of Salisbury, who paid him many compliments on his journey to the Western Islands. The common remark as to the utility of reading history being made, Johnson. We must consider how very little history there is. I mean real, authentic history. That certain kings reigned, and certain battles were fought, we can depend upon as true. But all the colouring, all the philosophy of history is conjecture. Footnote. Our silly things called histories, wrote Burke, correspondence. The Duke of Richmond, Fox, and Burke, said Rogers, table talk, were conversing about history, philosophy, and poetry. The Duke said, I prefer history to philosophy or poetry, because history is truth. Both Fox and Burke disagreed with him. They thought that poetry was truth, being a representation of human nature. Lord Bolingbroke had said, Works, Volume 3, page 322, that the child, in riper years, applies himself to history to that which he takes for history, to authorised romance. End footnote. Boswell. Then, sir, you would reduce all history to no better than an almanac, a mere chronological series of remarkable events? Footnote. Mr. Plunkett made a great sensation in the House of Commons, February the 28th, 1825, by saying that history, if not judiciously read, was no better than an old almanac, which Mercier had already said in his Nouveau Tableau de Paris. Mallet Dupont and such like histories of the Revolution are no better than an old almanac. Boswell, we see, had anticipated both. Croker, end of footnote. Mr. Gibbon, who must at that time have been employed upon his history, of which he published the first volume the following year, was present, but did not step forth in defence of that species of writing. He probably did not like to trust himself with Johnson. Footnote. It was at Rome on October the 15th, 1764, says Gibbon in a famous passage, that the idea of writing the decline and fall of the city first started to my mind. It was not till towards the end of 1772 that he undertook the composition of the first volume, Gibbon's miscellaneous works. 
Gibbon, when with Johnson, perhaps felt that timidity which kept him silent in Parliament. I was not armed by nature and education, he writes, with the intrepid energy of mind and voice, vicentem strepitus et natum rebus agendis. Timidity was fortified by pride, and even the success of my pen discouraged the trial of my voice. Gibbon's miscellaneous works. Some years before he entered Parliament, he said that his genius was better qualified for the deliberate compositions of the closet than for the extemporary discourses of the Parliament. An unexpected objection would disconcert me, and, as I am incapable of explaining to others what I do not thoroughly understand myself, I should be meditating while I ought to be answering. Ibid, end of footnote. Johnson observed that the force of our early habits was so great that though reason approved, nay, though our senses relished a different course, almost every man returned to them. I do not believe there is any observation upon human nature better founded than this, and in many cases it is a very painful truth, for where early habits have been mean and wretched, the joy and elevation resulting from better modes of life must be damped by the gloomy consciousness of being under an almost inevitable doom to sink back into a situation which we recollect with disgust. It surely may be prevented by constant attention and unremitting exertion to establish contrary habits of superior efficacy. The Beggar's Opera, and the common question whether it was pernicious in its effects, having been introduced. Johnson, as to this matter, which has been very much contested, I myself am of opinion that more influence has been ascribed to the Beggar's Opera than it in reality ever had. For I do not believe that any man was ever made a rogue by being present at its representation. At the same time, I do not deny that it may have some influence in making the character of a rogue familiar and in some degree pleasing. Footnote. A very eminent physician, whose discernment is as acute and penetrating in judging of the human character, as it is in his own profession, remarked once at a club where I was that a lively young man, fond of pleasure and without money, would hardly resist a solicitation from his mistress to go upon the highway immediately after being present at the representation of the beggar's opera. I have been told of an ingenious observation by Mr. Gibbon that the Beggar's Opera may perhaps have sometimes increased the number of highwaymen, but it has had a beneficial effect in refining that class of men, making them less ferocious, more polite, in short, more like gentlemen. Upon this Mr. Courtenay said that gay was the Orpheus of highwaymen. Boswell, end of footnote. Then, collecting himself, as it were, to give a heavy stroke. 
there is in it such a labefactation of all principles as may be injurious to morality while he pronounced this response we sat in a comical sort of restraint smothering a laugh which we were afraid might burst out in his life of Gray, he had been still more decisive as to the inefficiency of the beggar's opera in corrupting society. Footnote. The play, like many others, was plainly written only to divert without any moral purpose, and is therefore not likely to do good, nor can it be conceived without more speculation than life requires or admits to be productive of much evil. Highwaymen and housebreakers seldom frequent the playhouse or mingle in any elegant diversion, nor is it possible for anyone to imagine that he may rob with safety because he sees Macheath reprieved upon the stage. Works funny mate, page sixty eight in a footnote. But I have ever thought somewhat differently, for indeed not only are the gaiety and heroism of a highwayman very captivating to a youthful imagination but the arguments for adventurous depredation are so plausible the illusions so lively and the contrasts with the ordinary and more painful modes of acquiring property are so artfully displayed that it requires a cool and strong judgment to resist so imposing an aggregate yet i own I should be very sorry to have the beggar's opera suppressed, for there is in it so much of real London life, so much brilliant wit, and such a variety of airs which, from early association of ideas, engage, soothe, and enliven the mind, that no performance which the theatre exhibits delights me more. The late worthy Duke of Queensbury would note the worthy Queensbury yet laments his gay, the season's summer, line 142. Pope, prologue to the satires, line 259, says, Of all thy blameless life, the soul return my verse, and Queensbury weeping o'er thy urn. End of footnote. The late worthy Duke of Queensbury, as Thompson in his seasons justly characterises him, told me that when Gay first showed him the beggar's opera, his grace's observation was, This is a very odd thing, Gray. I am satisfied that it is either a very good thing or a very bad thing. It proved the former, beyond the warmest expectation of the author or his friends. Mr. Cambridge, however, showed us to-day that there was good reason enough to doubt concerning its success. He was told by Quinn that during the first night of its appearance it was long in a very dubious state, that there was a disposition to damn it, and that it was saved by the song, A ponder well, be not severe. Footnote, this song is the twelfth there in Act One, end of footnote the audience being much affected by the innocent looks of Polly, when she came to those two lines which exhibit at once a painful and ridiculous image, for on the rope that hangs my dear depends poor Polly's life. 
Quinn himself had so bad an opinion of it that he refused the part of Captain McKeith and gave it to Walker. Footnote. In several parts of tragedy, writes Tom Davies, Walker's look, deportment and action gave a distinguished glare to tyrannic rage. Davies's Garrick, end of footnote. Who acquired great celebrity by his grave yet animated performance of it. Footnote. Pope said of himself and Swift, Neither of us thought it would succeed. We showed it to Congreve. He said it would either take greatly or be damned confoundedly. We were all at the first night of it in great uncertainty of the event, till we were very much encouraged by overhearing the Duke of Argyle say, It will do, it must do. I see it in the eyes of them. This was a good while before the first act was over, and so gave us ease soon, for that duke has a more particular knack than any one now living in discovering the taste of the public. He was quite right in this, as usual. The good nature of the audience appeared stronger and stronger every act, and ended in a clamour of applause. Spencer's Anecdotes See the Dunciad Book 3, line 330, end of footnote. We talked of a young gentleman's marriage with an eminent singer, and his determination that she should no longer sing in public, though his father was very earnest she should, because her talents would be liberally rewarded and make her a good fortune. Footnote. R. B. Sheridan married Miss Linley in 1773 and a footnote. It was questioned whether the young gentleman, who had not a shilling in the world, but was blessed with very uncommon talents, was not foolishly delicate or foolishly proud, and his father truly rational without being mean. Footnote, his wife had three thousand pounds settled on her with delicate generosity, by a gentleman to whom she had been engaged. Moore Sheridan, end of footnote. Johnson, with all the high spirit of a Roman senator, exclaimed, He resolved wisely and nobly, to be sure. He is a brave man. Would not a gentleman be disgraced by having his wife singing publicly for hire? No, sir, there can be no doubt here. I know not if I should not prepare myself for a public singer as readily as let my wife be one. Johnson arraigned the modern politics of this country as entirely devoid of all principle of whatever kind. Politics, said he, are now nothing more than means of rising in the world. With this sole view do men engage in politics, and their whole conduct proceeds upon it. How different in that respect is the state of the nation now from what it was in the time of Charles I during the usurpation and after the restoration in the time of Charles II. Hudibras affords strong proof how much hold political principles had then upon the minds of men. There is in Hudibras a great deal of bullion which will always last. But, to be sure, the brightest 
strokes of his wit owed their force to the impression of the characters which was upon men's minds at the time to their knowing them at table and in the street in short being familiar with them and above all to his satire being directed against those whom a little while before they had hated and feared Footnote. those who had felt the mischief of discord and the tyranny of usurpation read hudibras with rapture for every line brought back to memory something known and gratified resentment by the just censure of something hated but the book which was once quoted by princes and which supplied conversation to all the assemblies of the gay and witty is now seldom mentioned and even by those that affect to mention it is seldom read the idler number fifty nine into footnote the nation in general has ever been loyal has been at all times attached to the monarch though a few daring rebels have been wonderfully powerful for a time the murder of charles i was undoubtedly not committed with the approbation or consent of the people had that been the case parliament would not have ventured to consign the regicides to their deserved punishment and we know what exuberance of joy there was when charles the second was restored if Charles II had bent all his mind to it, had made it his sole object, he might have been as absolute as Louis the Fourteenth. The gentleman observed he would have done no harm if he had. Johnson. Why, sir, absolute princes seldom do any harm, but they who are governed by them are governed by chance. There is no security for good government cambridge there have been many sad victims to absolute government johnson so sir have there been to popular factions boswell the question is which is worst one wild beast or many johnson praised the spectator particularly the character of sir roger de coverley he said sir roger did not die a violent death as has been generally fancied he was not killed he died only because others were to die and because his death afforded an opportunity to addison for some very fine writing we have the example of cervantes making don quixote die Footnote. In his Life of Addison, Johnson says, Works, Volume 7, page 431, the reason which induced Cervantes to bring his hero to the grave, para mi solo nació Don Quixote, y yo para él, made Addison declare, with undue vehemence of expression, that he would kill Sir Roger, being of opinion that they were born for one another, and that any other hand would do him wrong. End of footnote. I never could see why Sir Roger is represented as a little cracked. It appears to me that the story of the widow was intended to have something superinduced upon it, but the superstructure did not come. Footnote. 
it may be doubted whether addison ever filled up his original delineation he describes his knight as having his imagination somewhat warped but of this perversion he has made very little use johnson's works volume seven page four three one into footnote somebody found fault with writing verses in a dead language maintaining that they were merely arrangements of so many words and laughed at the universities of oxford and cambridge for sending forth collections of them not only in greek and latin but even in syriac arabic and other more unknown tongues johnson i would have as many of these as possible I would have verses in every language that there are the means of acquiring. Nobody imagines that an university is to have at once two hundred poets, but it should be able to show two hundred scholars. Pyrrhus's death was lamented, I think, in forty languages. Footnote. The papers left in the closet of Pyrrhus supplied his heirs with a whole winter's fuel the idler number sixty-five a chamber in his house was filled with letters from the most eminent scholars of the age the learned in europe had addressed Pyrrhus in their difficulties who was hence called the attorney-general of the republic of letters the niggardly niece though entreated to permit them to be published preferred to use these learned epistles occasionally to light her fires. Disraeli's Curiosities of Literature and a footnote. And I would have had at every coronation and every death of a king, every guardium and every luctus, university verses in as many languages as can be acquired. I would have the world to be thus told, here is a school where everything may be learnt. End of section 50